Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. Before we get started today, I want to give a, a big thanks to all those who have emailed us. We are well over 4,000 downloads now, and uh, the podcast seems to be picking up steam. And It has been a challenge, uh, and I should mention that uh, podcasting has not turned out to be quite as easy. It sounds easy, like we're just sitting here talking, and indeed that's what we're doing, but uh, the post-production issues are are something that uh, has befuddled me. And I know that many of uh, our listeners have been somewhat frustrated as a result of not being able to download all the podcasts or their iTunes connection not not showing all the podcasts. And I'm working on those issues, and I wish I could solve them instantly. But always keep your emails coming, and that's navigator at rvnavigator.com. And uh, we will try to uh, endeavor to keep you up to date with all of the podcasts. This is episode number 13. And we're doing this uh, in uh, April 1st of 2007, and we hope to uh, continue the podcast with your uh, help and assistance. Hopefully it's uh, achieving its goal of giving you something to listen to while you're traveling down the road. I've gotten several interesting emails about people actually using it in that way. Would your logistical problems be lessened if you were doing this from home rather than with a satellite dish in our rig? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't think so because, uh, in actuality, uh, the comments have been about uh, the balance of our voices and uh, how we do the podcast in terms of uh, the volume levels and then the the issues with downloading the episodes. I just don't know <laughs> where to go with that. Uh, there are technical issues which I don't often understand or have uh, any way of, of solving, as far as I know anyway. So, so it's learning by please doing. Please help us. <laughs> it's what? Learning by doing and reading and that sort of stuff. So right now we are located out of our back window. We see the ocean, and we have for several days. We are on the Coastal Bend of Texas, as they call it on the news, uh, in the Rockport area, and we are camped right on the water. We feel so lucky to be here. Um, we tried to get in here this weekend, and it was full, so we waited and came in on Monday, and we had a choice of one prime piece of real estate after another. And we have been lucky uh, in these past few days since our caravan ended because we have found that the state parks of Texas and the, the, the coastline of Texas offers many opportunities for great camping uh, with scenery. Perhaps it's not quite so developed as the Florida or the California coast in terms of permanent housing and hotels and condos, and so that leaves more space for people like us to sneak in and camp on the beach. But as we did last year, I think we made a podcast uh, where we talked to you from Port Aransas, uh, Texas, where we actually were able to camp on the beach and for virtually no cost. Uh, but that was, uh, and we did that again this year, but uh, we also are now camped at... Goose Island State Park. Goose Island State Park. It's listed in the book under Rockport, yes. but it's really north of Fulton. The, one of the things that it has is camping on the ocean. We are literally 50 feet from the ocean front. And each side has its own picnic table, which ah, is something we no longer take for granted. <laughs> and a little shelter over it. And yes, a little indeed. grill for barbecuing. And the Water and electric. And the shelters keep us spaced far 
from one another, so you yes. feel like you're not camping in someone else's armpit. Like yes, you they have decent the sites. But we have found uh, thousands and thousands of friendly mosquitoes, <laughs> which at this time of the year, I guess, is, is going to be a problem. And the thing that makes that less so is that there's always a breeze from the water, and so if it's, a, if it's windy enough, the mosquitoes blow away. But, of course, we got here via a caravan, and that's why we are in Texas. We ended up our... Mexico Yucatan caravan uh, just about two weeks ago. We spent a week or so kind of recuperating. In recovery. <laughs> Before we went on the caravan, we had visions of, of going to Big Bend, which Ew. would have been another 600-mile drive. But by the time we came back to Texas, it just didn't seem all that appealing to do a lot more driving when we still have to go home after this. Because although this caravan was uh, pretty much what we expected, um, it in- entailed a lot of driving, um, Getting to the Yucatan and to the area south of uh, of us, if you listened to the last pair, uh, last podcast, you know that we were in Cancun. And getting to Cancun uh, entails a fair amount of driving. We drove for three days, approximately, to get to any place that uh, takes its toll on on your on your ability to concentrate on the on the scenery and things. But one nice thing was that the gas and the diesel, oh, yeah. which is what we use, was considerably cheaper than it is in the U.S. So that was an appealing. A dollar ninety-seven a gallon, and now we're paying about a dollar two two sixty two yeah two fifty-nine two sixty for for diesel up here, and uh, with uh, the gas uh, at two forty-nine, and probably going up from there. Hopefully, you're listening to this at a time when <laughs> the gas prices are much less. You can say, "Oh, well, that was in the days when when gas was expensive," but uh, it has certainly shot up in price very recently. But that one of the advantages of going to Mexico is the fact that it has lower price fuel. And there were plenty of gas stations readily yes. available, and they generally had large asphalted areas around them, which was very much appreciated when you're driving in a caravan and. Well, or any big rig, yes. And, and, of course, they're not there for us. They're there for all the big trucks. Yeah, if you drive into Mexico, uh, there is no problem with fuel whatsoever. Um, they have many, many stations, and the nice thing is is that the stations are used to handling big rigs, and they have uh, diesel, separate diesel pumps, and and they're all the same price, so you don't have to shop around and say, ah, it's like drive down the road, as we've often done, five miles down the road, and the gases or the diesels uh dramatically less expensive. Another thing to think about when you're driving in the Yucatan is the condition of the roads. And and this was a real dilemma. It seemed like some of the people in our caravan uh, were not mentally prepared for the <laughs> poor conditions that we encountered. I don't know if our vehicle was either. <laughs> and, and one thing that kind of tickled me is that as we drove back out of the of Mexico, mm, we retraced yes. our steps going over some of the same roads we had taken south to come north again. And we weren't sure if our perceptions had changed or if the Mexicans had done a little paving while we were gone, (laughs) which could be. They were always working on it, but it didn't seem nearly so bad when we came back. And that's an interesting uh, perception. We spent six weeks uh, driving the roads of um, the Yucatan, and uh, as a rule, I would say that the roads on the eastern side of Mexico are worse than the roads on the western side, although we did not find as bad as we expected. Our second day out was one of the worst driving days we've ever had, I would say, because of all of the, I mean, the really nasty roads. Potholes, you know, lack of shoulders, steep drop-offs without any kind of a guardrail. And and just all sorts of vehicles. You know, you, you, you drove extremely slow, and it was a long day. It took us 10 hours to drive uh, 200 miles. And we just felt like, oh, will we ever get there? And you might encounter a double tanker truck followed by some goats yes, in a herd. Well. 
you just never knew quite what. It you wasn't were high see speed driving. It wasn't dangerous. It was just very tedious and taxing because it was so slow with all the potholes. And then there'd be topes, which are the sleeping policemen, the the bumps in the road, which they, which they put there on purpose. And you'd think with all the potholes, they just wouldn't need that. And then we were paying tolls for roads that we couldn't understand why they were toll roads. We had to drive the same route coming back, and. All of us were saying, oh, it's going to be so bad that last, the second to the last day. And we drove the road, and it was like, whoa, this isn't nearly as bad as we expected. (laughs) And I think the reason why is because... We were used to it? We were used to it. I don't know. You tell me. I think they did some paving, too. They were always yeah. out there trying to improve things. Yes. There's we... just so much to improve. It's a never-ending task. Yes. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, unlike what we expected, the further south you got, the better the roads got. And when we were down by Cancun, where we left our last, uh, where we left you on our last podcast, the roads were actually substantially better. But it's a much more touristy area. And, and there's that, more uh, tourist dollars down yeah, there to pay for roads. Maybe. It could well be. And there was more paving going on and there was more four-lane divided highways going on there were still some challenges even in that area well one thing we kept asking ourselves as we drove is could we have done this tour by ourselves good question really would good it question. be a good idea and i'm sure to our listeners yeah. by yourself yeah i think there are always compromises when you're with a tour group because you have to do what everybody else is doing pretty much the same time everybody else is doing it uh, when we had to pay a toll, we had to stand in a long line behind each other because right. they never had more than one person collecting the money. <laughs> and and so that got frustrating. But counterbalanced with that, you, you knew that you were following somebody who knew the route. Uh, there's nothing I hate you more than get having lost. to do a U-turn while we're towing. Uh, we didn't get lost. Um, but I have to say that pretty much the signage was good. If you paid attention, you could follow signs and get to where you were going and the maps we managed to purchase were pretty good Mm. although sometimes the ruin would be on the east side of the road instead of the west side as it showed it on the map yeah they were you have to have your wits and the language in terms of navigating as well so i think by and large we were glad we did the caravan and we yes if we did come back to mexico again on our own it wouldn't be alone we would like to do it with two or three other rigs just in case. Well, and there are, are, are breakdowns and things. We had numerous breakdowns uh, on this trip. Uh, we fortunately were not among them, but many of our, our group had various uh, problems. Mechanical difficulties. Uh, flat tires and... Uh, broken radiator broken hose, radiator broken hoses. springs on the trailer. <laughs> yeah, numerous issues. So it's nice to have a group along. <laughs> and one of the things that amazed us is is that no matter what problem you had, there were Mexicans around who could fix it. Especially a problem that didn't involve like a computer, but yeah, something yeah. mechanical or welding. Yeah, they were great or... at fixing. And they brought out a welding set and welded one of our bumpers, one of the group's bumpers. and In the campground. In the campground. <laughs> I don't know if you could find that uh, around home. And for very little money, we would stop to, you know, tire pressures and, you know, to get tires fixed. And and they just had the, the capabilities to do that and to keep mechanical things running, which is pretty amazing. They're used to doing that for themselves, and they're very happy to help you. Nice people. We found Mexicans to be extremely helpful and friendly, and these these ideas about banditos and, and danger on the highway, I think, are grossly over-exaggerated and probably outdated. I don't know. There are some people who think that uh, Al Capone still rules Chicago, our hometown, and banditos do not rule Mexico uh, from our experience. And we we didn't do driving a lot at night, but we certainly didn't feel afraid of going to a restaurant or something. There was just nothing, no sign of any problem 
for us at all or any animosity towards Americans. But when I think about camping again in Mexico, I would say the smaller a rig you bring in, the better off you are because Mexicans don't camp with big RVs and their campgrounds are not set up for big RVs. Simple things like entering um, a campground, the yes. gate would be narrow, there'd be low overhanging branches, you'd worry about the top of your rig, um, making turns were tight. They the campgrounds were on small roads that were not necessarily two-lane. So a nice conversion van would probably be a better way to go than the big rig that we brought Although our 32-foot uh, fifth wheel seemed to do pretty good, uh, although there were several people along in our group that had the 40-foot the uh, motorhome, and we had one gargantuan fifth wheel that was a 42-footer and with a Freightliner cab chassis pulling it. Pulling it. <laughs> so... And they made it, but uh, it sometimes was was a bit of a challenge uh, because the campgrounds um, just are not campgrounds the way we think about it. And I think that was one of the things that surprised us the most. Um, they they tell you up front when you're booking your RV caravan on this one that the campgrounds are the best available and they are probably substandard. Yeah, that ain't saying much. And that ain't saying much. They said uh, there is no such thing as real full hookups, and now I guess we would pretty much concur with that. Even and the full hookups weren't very full. <laughs> or they were overly full. <laughs> but they are the best available because uh, there are just no rigs like ours. And, you know, for the amount of traffic that they get in terms of RVers, there's just no reason to build really nice campgrounds. One nice thing, though, we, we stopped at Costa Esmeralda um, both coming and going. And in the time that we were gone, the owner of that campground took the money that he had received from our <laughs> caravan company put down a new layer of asphalt in uh-huh. the park so we were not so worried about getting stuck in the mud. And a problem built, we had. And finished building a little restaurant in the front in which he cooked us a delicious meal. So and he said he a, fixed the electricity. A very clear example <laughs> of, of part of the problem being yes. that you need the cash to do stuff. There aren't that many of these caravans. Um, we should mention maybe that uh, when you go down the Copper Canyon, there are over 50 of those caravans a year. Whereas on the East Coast, where we were, there were more like six a year. So there's not as much incentive to, to bring the facilities up to the standards that we Or wherewithal. To or wherewithal, improve. yeah. With that said, uh, we did manage to to make it through uh, all of the campgrounds safely. We, we spent, um, of the 44 days we spent in Mexico, I think we spent 17 dry camping. So we had to be prepared for that, and we are. Uh, we, sp- <laughs> we spent several other days... Well, I don't know what we call it dry, but we certainly were on the verge of... Uh, moist camping. Moist camping. <laughs> well, quite a new term here. Call it moist camping. Well, and moist is is an interesting word to use here because I think at virtually no campground did we have enough water pressure to actually hook up our water system. No, no. You could never take a shower just with the hose hooked up to the RV. So we filled up our tank and then pumped it out again. And pumped it out again with our because our pump in the in the rig was much more effective. Than and probably that was good because that gave us a chance to add a little bleach to the water and make sure that it was right. bacteria free. And last time we talked about water and how to purify the water, and that was uh, I'm I'm sure you'll find that very helpful. And we none of none of our group after using our techniques uh, really got uh, sick from water. And we continued to drink only the purified bottled water that we bought, and we used the, the water out of the, <laughs> the very slow Out of taps, our holding tank. Out of our holding tanks, which we filled. I mean, you know, it's amazing. It would take us uh, 
an hour to fill the tank. Or, and we used, we tried to keep the tank pretty full because you never knew at the next campground what whether there'd be water at all. And then, um, yes, there were dump stations or dump uh, places at campgrounds where you could dump, but um, as we found out several times, um, when you pulled the old plug, the, the drain did not drain, and so the dump overflowed. We're glad to be back in the United States where we can once again depend on the when water. When a full hookup is a full hookup. Uh, yes, and when they say here at the, at the state park that you don't have full hookups, but you do have water and electricity, you do have water and electricity. And that's kind of the topic we wanted to get into. The technical topic we wanted to get into today was our experience with electricity. And I read a lot of uh, messages on the message boards, you know, RV.net and uh, and other places, uh, RV Traveler. There's a lot of issues about electricity, which I think we can maybe help illuminate, illuminate and help uh, give you a little bit of information that might be useful. Um, we didn't really plan on using our air conditioner very much. But we should have. <laughs> Since the trip, we bought a second Honda 2000i generator and the connector box. And I think this is a, a very good choice for those people who want to run their air conditioner um, and are looking for a generator setup. We really, really like the 2000i, but it won't run our air conditioner. It'll run everything else uh, kind of in in sequence the hair dryer only on low but it will run the microwave uh by itself and it will run the coffee maker by itself by itself uh, so we didn't find that to be much of an inconvenience but there were surprisingly to us there was even though there was electric hookups we had a hard time running the air conditioner and we would have appreciated having the the uh, second generator which i didn't buy till we came home but now that we have it we can now uh, boondock in more hot, humid climates. We did quite a lot of research, and we found that uh, each Honda generator weighs about uh, 45 pounds. Together, of course, that's 90, which is less than 100, but the 3000i weighs uh, a little over uh, uh, 100 pounds, which means it would be very difficult to lift and to move around. And if you're a fifth-wheeler, this is important. you got to put it in the bed of your truck or you know someplace. We did kind of were envious of the Class A's because they all have these giant generators and they just park and push the button and everything works. And they don't have to go outside and hook up the electric cord like you do. Yep. But um, if you're a fifth wheeler, the the two Hondas uh, should work pretty good because when you you run both Hondas together, the it has a box which you can buy which plugs into each one, and then it has a 30 amp output, and that. Um, means that it actually has more, the two together have more output than the 3,000, because they're two 2,000s put together, and they're lighter, and they use less gas, and they cost less, which is very critical. So that uh, two 2,000s you can buy for about uh, $1,700, whereas one 3,000 costs uh, about $1,900. So big advantages to that, and uh, it's worth you taking a look at if you're looking for very stable, good power for your fifth wheel or trailer. But we were actually anxious to plug in, and um, only in a couple of places did we find the 30-amp plug. Even when we did, <laughs> we found it didn't really have 30 amps. So the first thing that Martha had to do when we got to a campground was to get out her... My gizmo. What's it called? <laughs> polarity checker. And check for reverse polarity. And check it has for grounding. grounding. And it has three or four different uh, parameters that it checks for. Uh, this is something you can buy at uh, Camping World or any um, 
electronics uh, parts place. It's a, it's got a three prong, twenty amp plug on it, a standard plug, and you plug it in before you connect your your RV. Because if one of these plugs is miswired and you plug yourself in, you might touch your RV and get yourself a big shock. Now, would this gizmo be useful in the U.S.? Well, I think it's a good, it's a good idea any place. You know, you should just test your power before you. Because I think up until now we just trusted that the power yeah, was done but correctly. Now that we've seen what can happen, you, we may not be quite as trusting. And it's so easy and fast to plug it in that I don't see much of a problem doing it. And now that we've become more sensitive to yes. it, we've realized that the voltage is not always up to par, even in American campgrounds. Exactly, yes, and that's a, a critical issue. Um, and now on the inside, we now have this uh, voltage checker, which I have uh, mentioned before, and I will put a link up to it again. Um, it's a very nice one because it plugs into any standard outlet, and then it, it gives you a constant reading as to the voltage and the, the cycles, the hertz. And that's critical because those two components are what makes up uh, good power. I think we can think of electricity a lot like water. It does make sense to think about electricity like water. In one of our campgrounds, the people at closest to the road had adequate power, and we didn't. And why would that be? Because we were at the end of the hose. Because we were at the end of the hose. And we were looking at our voltage machine, and the people at the end like us, had less than 100 volts, and the people at the beginning had more than uh, adequate power. And that's just because, just like with a a hose, if you start siphoning, or let's say the Rio Grande River, which is a a pretty common example, by the time all the farmers at the the head end take all their water, there's no water at the end for the, the people to use, and the same thing happened to us. So because a campground has good power doesn't mean that every site has good power. And that we found this out in uh, in Texas also. When we came back, we plugged in, <laughs> expecting to find great power to run our air conditioner and things. And as soon as we did it, we found that uh, the power was less than 110 volts, and that uh, is not really adequate. Uh, and I took it and plugged into a different pedestal, and the power was adequate. Now, does this hose analogy also work for homes? Because homes are on a yes, but, line of electricity. Yes, as well. of course it would work for homes, but uh, presumably the electric company has figured all that out and has big enough hoses to make fill it the standardized pi- to make, and, and we certainly have found that at home. But that's why houses, some houses have uh, 200 amp service, or other houses have 100 amp services because they can't uh, feed all the electrical devices. And why houses have to be rewired because. It sucks out the juice, and this is exactly what we need to, to, to look at because what we would do is look at our power meter, and it would say something like um, 110 volts. Okay, so now <laughs> if we were one of the first people to plug in, we'd rush over, turn on our air conditioner, and we would automatically see the voltage go down maybe 10 volts. But the air conditioner would work. Would start work. Start humming and pumping. And right. And so we'd shut, all, we'd shut all the windows, and then we would keep an eye on the voltage meter. And as other people started to turn on their air conditioners and, and other appliances, we would see the voltage go down because there's only so many electrons in the line, and they're being sucked out. After a few minutes, we might see it go down to 95 or 85. <laughs> and this is a, a, a big issue because you need a certain amount of voltage to run your air conditioner. And we are here to tell you what our air conditioner will run at. Um, one of the things that we found out is that uh, our air conditioner will, will run down to 90 volts. 
And then it makes this low grumbling noise, and you better rush and turn it off, or else you'll burn out the engine. Well, there are a lot of myths around. The myths are that you can't run your air conditioner when the voltage is low. And uh, We were kind of testing out the system, and we ran our air conditioner at 90 volts and didn't seem to have much trouble. We did shut it off when it went much below 90, but when do you want to sweat or do you want to be... <laughs> <laughs> or do you want to buy a new air conditioner when you get home? Fortunately, we haven't had to. Well, we we did have to make those choices, and uh, when the voltage was too low, we did shut it off. But overall, we were surprised at how low the voltage could be, and we could run the air conditioner without much problem. The air conditioner does have a sensor in it which will shut itself off if it overheats. The compressor is sensitive to that, and a lot of people will tell you, but I'm telling you from first-hand experience, that it will run down to 90 volts. And this is another issue which we have to kind of talk about. Uh, people buy line conditioners, and some coaches have these uh, these devices in them which automatically cut off the power if the power is quote-unquote too low or too high. My question would be, why is that device set at the voltage that it is? I think it's and rather it arbitrary. Problems for one of our it caused this many problems. Kept shutting down because because they would it would all of a sudden cut out the, the the entire coach's power, and it would kind of blink on and off. You know, if it shut it off at a hundred volts, it would blink on and off as, as the power fluctuates above and below a hundred volts. Uh, and these are often external devices that you plug in. Another device that somebody had, which I consider to be virtually bogus, is the Power Booster. And these things cost a lot of money. And if you read the Power Booster website, oh, yes, it'll boost your power. Uh, if your voltage goes down to 115, it'll vo- it'll kick it up to 118. Well, big deal. <laughs> like I care too much about 3 volts. Uh, it, you just can't squeeze more power out of a line that does that can't supply it. So there is no device which will actually boost your voltage without uh, other parameters being changed. Yes, you can vo- boost the voltage if you if you reduce the amperage, but that's not really a fair comparison. So without having a battery backup, you can't boost the voltage. And of course, this is another recommendation that I would make: is, is that on sensitive electronic equipment that you get an uninterruptible power supply, a UPS, which we used um, on all of our sensitive electronics. Because in in Mexico and in the United States, you'll find that there is power that's not clean, and it could damage your sensitive electronics. So on our TVs, on our computers, our satellite system, I actually have three UPSs. And a UPS has a battery, and the battery kicks in when the voltage goes, goes low. And it also has a, a powerful filtering, which keeps uh, spikes and other imperfections in the electrical signal from uh, interfering with your with your sensitive electronics. So you do need to, to take a look at these things, uh, whether you're in the United States or Mexico, but it came into the fore while we were in Mexico. We certainly paid a lot more attention then. Yes. Well, and there was much more to pay attention to. I've never seen the voltage go below, well, it rarely 100? goes below 110, not, a, not below 100, certainly. And so I don't. E- we don't even think about it. And at home, it's you know it's like rock steady at, at one twenty or one twenty two or something. Now there was that one campground we were in yeah. where the voltage was always <laughs> too high. Well, that's another issue. This is something I really hadn't thought about. So we were in a campground, and uh, the voltage was uh, approaching one hundred and forty, and that is really high. Um, and so I was a little afraid of 
actually more afraid of that than than because that would just fry your electronics instantaneously. And once again, I I feel the UPSs did a good job with that, but the air conditioner seemed to seemed to groove on that too. So I didn't worry too much about that. I guess it just makes the the compressor more efficient if it's running at a high voltage. But everybody is plugged in. Everybody had their air conditioner on, and this thing was still running at 135. Plugged in everything we could think of to try to bring it down a little. And why in Mexico they don't have a stable electro, elect, uh, electrical grid, I just don't understand. But uh, uh, you just don't find but that. there it is. But there it is. So I guess the bottom line when you're dealing with electricity is is that uh, pay attention to what's going on and uh, have the uh, appropriate devices so that you can monitor it. And don't assume that everything is okay. And don't just assume that everything is okay, right. And, of course, having the, the right plugs and stuff is, is a, a critical factor also. And if all else fails, then generate your own. Now, is it possible it would have been so nice if we could have plugged into that weak electric current yeah, and run our really generator and combine the power for the two? Really that would be really interesting. And I'm, thinking, and I'm thinking that with the generator and its attachment to the second generator that we could plug it into the mm, to the grid, boost up the voltage for and ourselves. End up with enough. Because doesn't the generator <laughs> kind of produce uh-huh. what you need? Because I remember ours said it would run for 11 hours at quarter power, which I assume yeah. means you aren't running much of anything. Yeah, I don't know how that would work. Um, and I haven't seen any system outside of for hooking it up to a house system that that would... That would allow you to do that. I'm not sure if you could connect up to the grid simultaneous with <laughs> running your generator, but I maybe somebody out there knows and could help us out with this issue. I don't know. but And I've never seen anybody trying to do it because it's not an issue that we have when we're at home. Camping here. When we're camping here. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say is if you came down there by yourself, there are definitely places you want to see as a tourist that have no campgrounds whatsoever. And it became clear that it's pretty easy to wheel and deal yourself into a parking lot as long as you are willing to boondock. Um, we stayed at what I would call kind of a water amusement park called Ishkaret, and they allowed our camp campers to be in their parking lot for $20 a night, not a small Ooh. fee. Uh, some of our group left a bit early and drove on home by themselves, and they ate a meal at a restaurant that had a big parking lot, and because they bought their dinner there, they were free to stay the night. It does seem to be possible to boondock more easily than it would be in the United States, but of course you can only boondock for so many days, then you need some more water and a dump and electricity again. Uh, yes, and I don't know where you would go to get those things um, except at a campground. There are no flying J's. There are no flying J's with with great uh, hookups right there for you. Uh, you know, diesel's no problem, and you could park probably at the Pemexes, um, and there are lots and lots of pull-offs and parking lots that uh, would accommodate rigs. And t- truckers do it all the time. Yes, indeed. And, and another night we stayed at a hotel that had a huge parking lot in the back. We used their beautiful pool, and it had a little shower facility along the side, and we could see the truckers coming in for the night, taking a shower like you would at the Flying J, and staying in the hotel parking lot. So you can do more freelance camping, I guess, in Mexico than you, freelance. Can, mm-hmm. than you can at mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. That's what the, the nice thing about the caravan is that they did put us into a campground that had uh, uh, a dump that, uh, on a regular basis so we could get rid of uh, the waste products because that's the biggest problem. I think you could find water and you could generate your own electricity, but getting rid of the 
the gray and the black is uh, is a pretty big issue after a few days. Oh, so black. The grave, no one would notice. Can't say that on a podcast. Well, they didn't notice in (laughs) South Africa, did they? They let us pump it on the ground. Oh, that's right. Last year at this time we were in South... Oh, that's right. They just let us... Oh, the shower. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to listen to those podcasts because that was a very another very interesting experience. So I think that about takes care of uh, the topic for today. And we're anxious to uh, get on the road again and to report to you uh, in next month but for the time being this is ken your rv navigator saying that we will probably be camped in a campground near you if so come on over and say hi and martha the co-pilot wishing you happy travels and a safe trip see you soon bye now